is looking at a, the shepherd prophet, a man called Amos, who lived many years ago, and we'll look more about his life and background shortly. But also to encourage anyone, um, we, we had, a, when we, Mandy, my wife and I visited Lancaster Grange uh, this week, uh, one, of the, one of the residents who came to see us asked us a question, which was really lovely to hear. And if you have any questions, whether you're uh, from the congregation online in general or folk from Lancaster Grange, any questions about what uh, we look at today, then please do feel free to ask them, send them to me from Lancaster Grange, send them via Charlotte if you want to, or, or send them direct to me. Uh, if anyone has my email address or give us a ring. We'd really love to help if you need to follow up on any of the issues and things that we look at in any of the sermons. So just encourage you and invite you to do that. Let's uh, pray as we look at God's word together. Father, as we open our Bibles, we pray that our hearts will be open, open to you, to what you say and what you tell us to do. And we pray for help and grace to do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Lovely. Well, Amos, uh, the shepherd prophet. So that's the overall series as we go through these chapters of the book. But uh, the particular uh, title for today is The Lion Roars, The Lion Roars. So first of all, we're going to kind of have a little bit of a historical kind of context of um, this uh, passage. Now, Amos is not a story, like Esther is a story, isn't it? We had that read to us. Uh, but Amos is not a story. It's a, a prophecy. Uh, and it's warning, it's encouragement, it's instruction. But rather than a simple story from A to, a to B or A to Z, uh, beginning to end, if you imagine it like overlapping slides of prediction, warnings, appeals, prediction, warnings, appeals. So that's what it's like. And rather than a story, an A to, a to Z story, the style is poetic in many places. There's imagery um, and therefore it's not, not a story. Uh, and there are things that are, people are told, warnings about what they should not be doing, uh, instructions, encouragements to do what they should be doing. And also an offer of from God for forgiveness and for restoration and so on. So there are metaphors and imagery to unpack as we go through this book. But overall, the message is, is very plain. And we'll come to that a little bit later on. Now, let's think about Amos and think about his, his life and so on. Well, Amos is someone who lived in the 8th century BC. So obviously many years ago, 2,800 or so 2,700 and something years ago. And he prophesied in the middle of that century in the 750s, 750s BC. So we're looking at someone who lived many, many years ago. Now his name, Amos, it means burden bearer. And Amos had a message. He had a burden from God to pass on. Uh, and it's a serious message to share in particular with Israel, as well as other nations and Judah, but particularly his message, his burden, was to share with the Israelites, uh, the northern tribes of Israel. And he was from a village called Tekoa, which is a, a rural area about 10 miles south of Jerusalem. You might just see uh, Jerusalem on the map in small writing there, uh, but 10 miles south of Jerusalem. So he was from, from the south uh, of Israel, the whole of Israel, uh, and he was from this village called Tekoa. Now, chapter one, verses one and two, it says the words of Amos, 
So Amos obviously wrote down these words in this book that we have here, this prophecy. And it says that he was one of the shepherds of Tekoa. The vision he saw, this is what he's writing, the vision he saw concerning Israel two years before the earthquake, when Uzziah was king of Judah and Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, was king of Israel. He said, this is the start of his message, the Lord roars from Zion and thunders from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds dry up and the top of Carmel withers. And so we get to our title for this morning, The Lion, the Lord Roars from Zion. Now, what was uh, Amos, what was his trade? Was he a, a priest or a, a professional prophet? Um, no, not at all. His trade, he was a shepherd and someone also tended fig trees. Now, figs were usually the, the fruit of poor people uh, and being a shepherd wasn't a, a wealthy trade. And so therefore we conclude that most likely Amos wasn't a very wealthy person, wasn't a very influential person in the day. In chapter 7, verse 14, that Dale read to us earlier on, it says, Amos answered Amaziah, he was the king of the north, northern tribes of Israel. I was neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet, but I was a shepherd, and I also took care of sycamore fig trees. But the Lord took me from tending the flock and said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. Now, if you want to know about caring for fig trees, have a, a word with Franca, because I believe that she's very successful at growing figs in the UK. Now, Amos could possibly have been, as I said, a, a poorer person in his, his society. There's no evidence that he was rich or influential, but he takes his message, and we'll see that a bit later on in the series, right into the, the king's sanctuary in the temple of the kingdom. Chapter 7, verse 13 tells us about that. So he takes his message to, to power. He speaks his truth to power. And he's someone who has to obviously be very courageous to do that, just a, a simple shepherd and, and gardener, a farmer and a gardener. He has to go to the very heart of power in the north. And there's a reminder here that we should never think that you or I are the wrong kind of person, that, that God therefore can't use us. God can use us and God specializes in using people who are unusual or who you wouldn't imagine would be able to do something. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, in a passage in the New Testament, uh, the Apostle Paul writes here, and he says, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. That's before you became Christians. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were in influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. So be encouraged that God can use you, your life, as long as you surrender to him and, and ask him to, to use you and serve you. That's a wonderful reminder there. So that's something of, of Amos and where he lived and so on. Let's think more about the times of Amos. Let's think more about the age in which he lived. Now, going back to the beginning of the prophecy, chapter 1, verse 1, the words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa, the vision he saw concerning Israel two years before the earthquake. So there's a, something, a historical note there. When Uzziah was king of Judah and Jeroboam, was, the son of Jehoash, was king of Israel. Now, we can date the rules of those, of those kings, the, the reigns of those kings. And it's now almost 200 years since a civil war in Israel. There wasn't the north and the south 200 years earlier. It was one nation. 
But after Solomon, the King Rehoboam made some bad decisions and the nation split into two and there was north and the south. And it's really sad. There was a civil war in Israel and the northern tribes were called Israel and the south was called Judah. You can see that on the map, hopefully on your screens. In the south, there was the original temple and the original priesthood. In the north, King Jeroboam I, he set up a rival, obviously, kingdom, but rival centers of worship at the towns of Bethel and Dan. And there were golden calves that were made to represent, represent God. So that was a big departure from uh, the, the worship that the Israelites had been taught how to worship and approach God. So idolatry and an unauthorized priesthood was officially embedded into the northern kingdom right from the beginning after the split. Now in the south, things were better, but still not good, very up and down. Now Amos, who was from the south, he preached a couple of centuries after this split into the north and the south. And, and things at this point, when Amos was on the scene, in both nations were reaching a bad tipping point. Almost it was enough was enough. Uh, and God was about to intervene. Firstly, in the north, in Israel, and then later in Judah. But now, at this point, even at this point, as things were coming to this tipping point, there was a chance to repent, a chance to hear a warning, to hear a message, to turn back to God, and for things to change for the better. Now, the prophet Isaiah began his ministry sometime in the year that King Uzziah died. So Uzziah uh, was the, the king who was on the throne when Amos was, was preaching this message. So it might have been possible that the Amos knew of at least uh, Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, but we're not sure, not told that. But Uzziah in the south was a better king overall, but even he blew it when he got too proud and too big-headed, uh, and uh, he, he blew it. Now, Jeroboam II in the north at this time, he was just a bad king, <laughs> just a bad king. So it wasn't good. It wasn't good for the north or the southern kingdom. But it was a time of great prosperity, both for the north and for the south. They had regained territory previously lost to, to Syria and other small kingdoms around them. And both Israel and Judah, both nations were doing well. Now, let's look at Judah for a minute. Imagine that you're going for holiday to, to Judah in the south, and uh, maybe you're going to call in at Amos's home on the way, but for now, you're just walking around the tourist areas, looking at the sites, looking at the temple and so on. There's a beautiful temple there in Jerusalem, which is very much the center of worship. There was a highly organized priesthood, and you would observe that the people in the south in Judah were, were religious people, that they enthusiastically celebrated the Jewish festivals, and uh, it, it looks great. Uzziah had built up Judah's military defences. The army was strong. There was nice uh, fortifications on the borders. And it was peaceful times. The enemies were quiet. It, it felt secure. It felt peaceful. And it, there were prosperous times. People were making money. There was wealth building up in the nation. Now, go up to the north then and go and visit on holiday to the north. Bethel and Dan were the, the alternative religious centers for the northern tribes. They still claimed to worship the Lord. They still cl claimed to be people of, of the, the God of the Bible. But a superficial look would see, again, a religious people, a peaceful people, and a prosperous nation, because the north was prospering and peaceful too at this time. But now let's go off the tourist routes. Let's look back in Judah. Let's look back in Israel. Let's go off the tourist routes 
look behind the scenes, look down some of the, the alleyways and the, the homes behind the official tourist routes, and you'll see greed, idolatry. Look in the, the palaces, look in the, the law courts, look in the in, amongst in the homes and where the priests worked and you'll see exploitation of the vulnerable you'll see greed you'll see corruption you'll see injustice it reminds us doesn't it of nations today things that we're concerned about even in our own nation primary love for god love for your fellow neighbor was supposed to be things that were fundamental to all israelite all israelite and these two principles, if they were put into practice, love for God and love for your neighbour, would eradicate and purge all idolatry, all corruption. And for those who would fall on hard times, there would be support and care. Love your neighbour as you love yourself. Now, Jesus said later on, uh, seven, eight hundred years later, that in this world, you'll always have the poor amongst you. And that's a sad reality in a sin-spoiled world. But it's how you treat them. It's what you do about justice, what you do about poverty and so on. That's the issue. We'll always have needs around us in this world. But what do we do about it? Well, both Judah and Israel, they should have been aware of God's instructions in Exodus 23, verse 6, where it says there, do not deny justice to your poor people in their lawsuits. And in Deuteronomy chapter 15, it says there, if anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites in any of the towns of the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted towards them. So there shouldn't have been struggling people. There shouldn't have been injustice and corruption and greed. There shouldn't have been idolatry in either north or south. But go behind the tourist routes and you would have seen it. And Amos knew about it. And this comes to the, the message of Amos, the burden of Amos. And his message was basically this. People need to repent of their sins in the towns and cities of, of Jerusalem and and uh, in Hebron uh, and Bethel and so on, that they need to repent of their sins. The people in the north and south, they need to seek the Lord for forgiveness. They need to put into practice the principles of, of loving God and loving your neighbour as you love yourself. People need to turn back to the authentic and the original worship of the Lord to get rid of the idols and the corruption. And really, uh, we had a question the other day about what evangelicalism is. And really, that's what evangelicalism is it's a movement evangelicalism is not a denomination a separate denomination but it's a, it's a movement it's a, an attitude it's a, a way of thinking it's not a newfangled novel religion but really it's a movement to get back to what the bible actually teaches about jesus and evangelicalism uh, is seen across denominations it's a movement it's a desire to to kind of avoid the obscuring traditions that have been built up over the years and to get back to what it really means to know God and to live for him. Evangelicalism in that sense is, is older than all the established church traditions. It goes back and beyond even to what Amos is, is preaching here in his letter, in his prophecy. And, and every generation needs its reformers. Every generation needs the, if you like, the evangelical thinking to get back to what the Bible actually teaches. We need people to help clear out the things that obscure the true message. So really, that's simply what evangelicalism is. It's not a newfangled religion that's come from another country. It's basically that desire, like Amos had, to turn the people back to what God is saying, what we, how we should be living, and so on. And the message of Amos to his people was upsetting the boat, though. 
It was, it was rocking the boat. It was disturbing people's complacency. They were peaceful, they felt. They were feeling more, more and more prosperous. Things were good. It seemed as if God was blessing the nations. And what Amos was saying, surely that is going to start off uncomfortable inquiries about how the government behaved. What Amos was saying was going to start uncomfortable questions about how the priesthood conducted themselves. It would look behind the, the sofa of people's lives, shine a light in areas where people didn't want the light to be shone. And, you know, that's what the gospel of Jesus always does to us as individuals. It shines a light in the dark corners of our lives. It shows up our self-centeredness, our greed, our pride. It reveals the sinfulness. But, you know, the gospel, as Amos' message also did, it reveals real hope for forgiveness. It reveals an opportunity for peace with God, for a new start. And so Amos is like the gospel. It's a message of hope. In Romans chapter 6, verse 23, the words are, for the wages of sin is death. That's a reality. But the gift of God is a greater reality. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So there's hope for us. The message of Amos, it's a serious warning, particularly to the leaders, to the nation, but also to individuals. And it's a message of hope. Seek the Lord and there's life. We'll see that as we go through Amos. Seek the Lord and live. Seek the Lord. Seek me, God says, and live. And this, this again reminds us of the words of Jesus, because Jesus points to himself, not in a big-headed, proud way, but because he is God who came to live amongst us, to, to be our saviour. And he says about himself in John's Gospel, chapter 10, and verse 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, because ultimately that's what the idolatry and the corruption and all those horrible things that were going on behind the scenes in the nation, that was what was going to happen. People's lives were going to be destroyed. People's lives were going to be hurt and damaged by all these horrible things. So the thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they might may have life and have it to the full, he says. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Those are the words of Jesus. And, and Amos wrote back, to the nation in his day, in chapter 5 and verse 14 of his uh, prophecy here. Seek good, not evil, that you may live. Then the Lord God Almighty will be with you. Just as you say he is. Hate evil, love good, maintain justice in the courts. Perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. That's another way of describing the Israelites. At the end of Moses, as we come to a conclusion on this section, looking at the message of, of Amos, at the, at the end of, of Amos is, is the promise of restoration of the, of the nation. But the question still hangs, who will be there after justice has come? Who will be saved? Who will listen and respond to the message? And that obviously is still something that echoes today as we hear the gospel about Jesus Christ. Who will listen? Who will respond the message. Now let's think about a very powerful image, the Lord as a lion, the Lord as a lion. In chapter 1 verse 1 of um, chapter 2, sorry chapter 1 and verse 2 of Amos, we have this phrase, the Lord roars from Zion and thunders from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds dry up and the top of Carmel uh, withers. 
Now, the pasture lands of the north and the south were highly important to Israel and to Judah's economy. Uh, sheep uh, were obviously a big part of uh, their livelihood, uh, farming sheep and so on. Carmel was a, the very fertile region in the northern part of Israel. And clearly there's a warning here that these pasture lands are going to dry up. Carmel withering. It's an image of things aren't going to carry on in peace and prosperity if you don't listen to the Lord. But it's this image of the Lord like a lion roaring that I'd like us to consider for a few moments. Now, I'm sure you've heard of The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe and the Narnia series of books. And it's interesting that C.S. Lewis, the writer, he chose a lion, Aslan, to represent Jesus in his stories. Now, let me ask you a question. What animal would you think that he might have chosen? What animal would you have chosen if you were trying to represent Jesus in a, an allegory, in a story? about about him some of you some of us might prefer a more cuddly or or safe image and that's a, a thing that comes out in actually that that c.s lewis addresses in the the line and the witch and the wardrobe if you remember one of the characters in the story mr beaver uh in reference to the question is the lion is aslan safe safe who said anything about safe of course he isn't safe says the beaver but he's good he's the king i tell you Aslan wasn't safe, wasn't tame, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Now, Bill Kaiser uh, wrote this regarding this uh, issue of Aslan uh, being uh, representative of Jesus. He says, Aslan, Aslan is not a tame lion. He is not safe. All throughout the Narnia Chronicles, we encounter a being who is wild and on the loose. He is not to be tied down. He cannot be controlled, manipulated or bullied. He commands reverence and obedience. When the children encounter Aslan for the first time, they are overwhelmed. And again, quoting from the book, people have not been in Narnia, sometimes think that a thing cannot be good and terrible at the same time. If the children had ever thought so, they were cured of it now. For when they tried to look at Aslan's face, they just caught a glimpse of the golden mane and the great, royal, solemn, overwhelming eyes. And when they found they couldn't look at him, they went all trembling. Now, what image do you have of God? What image do you have of Jesus? Now, if we think that, that God could never judge somebody, that God could never act as a judge and punish, then we've got a false image of God. We've got a God who ultimately is not truly love, because love obviously needs to protect. Love needs to deal with things that are going to hurt and harm others. Love is concerned about justice. Love is concerned about righteousness and so on. So for God to be truly loving, he needs to be a just God. Now, God is truly compassionate. He's a compassionate God. He, he's loving and merciful. And he offers forgiveness and his arms are open wide. We see that even amongst the serious warnings that we have in the prophecy of Amos and we see how Jesus responded to the crowds when he saw them in Matthew chapter 9 and verse 35 there were crowds of people Jesus went through all the towns and villages teaching in the synagogues proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness when he saw the crowds he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd so to keep that picture of Jesus in mind, the picture of the compassionate 
God. But this same God, this same Jesus, is the assessor. He's the judge. And there comes a point in all our personal histories and in the history of nations and in the history of the world when a final tipping point is reached and enough is enough. And Jesus, the compassionate saviour, who had compassion upon the crowds, later on he refers to that time when the tipping point has, has come. Matthew 24 and verse 30. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Jesus there is describing his, his return one day to come as judge, glorious in glory and great power. Now, for those who have continued to refuse the compassion and the offer of love and forgiveness and mercy of Jesus and refuse to repent of their sin, that there will be a tipping point when enough is enough and there will be eternal consequences to a life of saying no to Jesus. But for those who have acknowledged their sins and turned to Jesus for his forgiveness and for his restoration, there will be a very good and eternal consequences to their faith in Jesus. And that is the heart of how the choice that we have. And it leads us to a question of how we are going to respond to the gospel, to the good news about Jesus. That's why the very heart of the Christian message is phrases like this, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. But then, of course, there's the other side of that. If you don't, you won't. And that's not God, not because God is being awkward to, to narrow it down just arbitrarily, just for the sake of being narrow. No, it's because that is the reality, because there is only one saviour, Jesus. Jesus. Jesus who said, I am the way. And then he said, I'm the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Well, anyone can make big claims, but, but what did Jesus do? He died and then he rose again to prove it. Now back to Amos. It was the same. His message included hope. It included the offer of forgiveness. It included a chance to, to repent and to be saved. And you know, God was very patient with the people that Amos was about to preach to and delivered his message to. For Israel, it was... 200 years for Judah and Israel together, it was a lot longer. They'd had many years, centuries, being warned. Because Amos, you see, wasn't the first prophet. He was one of the, the first who, who wrote down the words in a book, that's true. But many others had warned people before. And now a tipping point was coming. A tipping point was being reached. And the Lord needs to be taken seriously. The lion roars. Do we take... God, seriously, enough. Now, the, the last thing is this, the roaring lion and the suffering lamb. The roaring lion and the suffering lamb. Now, the prophet Joel writes something similar in his prophecy, and they could have been around similar times, overlapping times. Uh, Joel writes, the Lord will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem. Uh, and then we see in Hosea, the Lord is to be feared and respected. Hosea uses similar imagery. They will follow the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. And in that picture there in Hosea, it's a positive image as God's people return from exile after a time of disaster. But the roar is a roar that scares the unrepentant sinner. The roar of the lion 
is to put fear into those who are not taking God seriously and carry on with their corruption, injustice and greed and selfishness and so on. But it's a rule which bring, brings comfort to a believer. Now, I um, stayed with a friend, uh, Clive, years and years ago. Uh, he used to live in, in Froome in Somerset. And this is when I used to work with the open air mission, I used to travel and uh, help with holiday Bible clubs and things like that. And sometimes used to go and stay at his home as we were leading a mission somewhere in some church in the area. And he lived about five miles away from a uh, stately house and a uh, safari park, a long leat, I believe it was. And sometimes if the air was still, even though you're five miles away, you could listen and you could hear the lions roaring five, five miles away. And it's a, a very majestic sound uh, to hear a lion roar and it travels so far. Now, we see this lion image and it's a picture of the Messiah. It's a picture of Jesus. And we see this in Amos and other parts of the Bible too. And, and Jesus does need to be taken seriously. But amazingly, as the idea develops through the Bible, one of the ultimate images or metaphors of Jesus is the lion who also looks like a sacrificial lamb, the roaring lion and the suffering lamb. Let me read to you from Revelation chapter five. And we see this imagery there. But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll and look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Now imagine that John, who sees this prophecy, sees this vision, that he would look and see a lion roaring. But what does he do? In verse 6, he looked, then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the centre of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders the lion who looks like a lamb who has suffered and this is the ultimate image of god of jesus that we have in the bible can you see the significance of this the lion god who is the judge who should not be ignored who needs to be taken seriously he's the very one who died to save us he is also the lamb who has been slain the roaring lion and the sacrificial lamb. How could the sins of Israel and Judah be forgiven? How could there be restoration? How can our sins be forgiven? How can we have a new start? How can we have a hope of heaven? How can we be sure of heaven? How can we know peace with God? Because the lion became a lamb and suffered for our sins. I encourage you, I urge you to take him seriously to turn from all that you know is wrong and to trust in him, to we pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you used a shepherd and a farmer many, many years ago to bring a serious message to your people. And we know, Lord, that there were people in Israel and Judah who did repent, who did turn to you, who were saved. And we thank you, Lord, that the message was heard by many. But Lord, we know that many others didn't, and we know, Lord, it was a very serious time in the history of Israel and Judah. Lord, we pray that we would be like those who did listen, who did take you seriously, who did listen to the lion roaring and found that the lion was a lamb who suffered for us and gave his life for us. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are 
the roaring lion, but you are also the suffering lamb, the sacrificial lamb who so loved us and gave yourself for us. Lord, we bring ourselves to you and ask that you'd help us to trust and to follow you. And we pray your blessing upon what we've heard this morning. We ask these things in your precious name. Amen.